Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. So attendance at the nine o'clock session on a Friday is a famous test of moral fiber um, and liver function. And um, why are you drinking um, Diet, Diet Coke? Coke? Is that a hangover cure? It's a, ca- it's a caffeine thing. Ah. A big caffeine thing. Um, oh, and of course they have their names on now, don't they? Kate. So you've got Kate. That's in honor of um, the Duchess of Cambridge. because I'm such a royalist. Yeah, yeah no, I thought... Um, <laughs> we're here to talk to uh, Denise Miner um, about her books, and particularly the Alex Morrow series, of which the most recent is The Red Road. There's another one to come, we'll discuss. We'll find out how um, advanced it is shortly. We'll talk about various things. Um, I'm sure you won't mind talking about it. I mean, I think people are interested. The, um, it's sort of the Hilary Mantel question. So when you get to the stage of your career where you turn up for um, award ceremonies, where people expect you to win, um, h- how do you deal psychologically with that? Do, do you hope you... <laughs> <laughs> Do you hope you will or hope you won't? After two, you kind of hope you won't. And I, I woke up this morning, my first thought was, people don't have to hate me, so I'm quite... <laughs> 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 and uh, I became quite inured to that because uh, my mum just thinks everything that my sister and I do is magical. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, endless positive reinforcement. I got a job, at, I got a paper round when I was a kid and she told everyone I had a position in Fleet Street. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I, once I, we, we were in the Louvre and I dropped a pencil on an e- exhibit and she told everyone I had an exhibit in the Louvre. <laughs> <laughs> so a very Catholic, boastful mother, you know, a sort of Jewish mother type thing. Um, but, uh, I mean, just to be on the short list, I mean, I don't know how... I think most people probably feel this way. I'm not that great at accepting compliments and I always find a way to kind of mitigate it. And um, But... Th- you know, being on the short list even for three in a row, it's quite hard to mitigate that. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? And yeah. It's just, it's really lovely. I thought if, if I won, I might start crying and actually show some genuine emotion without being giggly, do you know? So, um, uh, but Belinda Bower's book is a fantastic mm. book. And uh, just to be on a short list with those people was bloody brilliant. No, well, Hilary Mantel, as you know, said that um, whatever happens to the third book in her Cromwell trilogy, the, the headline will almost certainly be uh, Mantel fails to win Man Booker Prize. <laughs> so, um, uh, well, in, in two senses, you can't win, but I mean, that's the... Um, uh, what did you... Did you have a speech ready, just in case? No. So I always talk better when I don't have a speech. If I do have a speech, usually what happens is I start giving the speech in a very stilted way. You know yourself, what you write down sounds fine when you're on your own and then you, you look up and you can see people thinking, what are you on about? <laughs> so I think it's always better just to speak sort of spontaneously and forget everyone who's helped you. That's <laughs> de rigueur. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the organisers of the festival may leap forward at this question, but um, I think a lot of people were asking me this. Um, people don't know on the night who's won the You've award. You've no idea. Right. And some awards you do know. Mm. Some awards... One of the organisers will come up maybe before or they'll say to you, you know, you can get your face ready for, you know, disappointment or whatever. Uh, uh, <laughs> but quite often they don't tell you. And, you know, um, at this one they don't tell you and you literally have no idea. In fact, last year I was sitting with my publicist, Angela, and uh, she, said, she leaned over just as the lights went down. She said, you know, you haven't won. I said, yeah, I know, I'm sorry, don't worry. 
Lucy because she won last year. So uh, it felt like a particularly brutal trick. But it's, I mean, it always, <laughs> it always feels like, you know, it's, it is a kind of form of torture because most writers are pretty introverted, mm. quite shy people. And you get like a bunch of them together and then, um, you know, you make them feel really, really self-conscious. And then um, and then you give one of them a huge surprise and then shove them out on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody watches them, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, uh, it's part of the thing, isn't it? You know. But I mean, it is. I mean, it is a real roller coaster. It takes weeks to come down from something like that. Mm. You know, mm. it, it takes weeks to come up with a reason why they didn't really mean that, and it was actually because Christopher Brookmeyer was in Australia. And <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to talk about various things. Uh, plotting particularly interests me because it's it's obviously of huge significance um, in crime fiction, particularly in your books, because. Um, I found that, uh, which is one of the things um, I so admire about them, um, they're, they're more and more intricate. That you, you set up these plots at the beginning, and um, in the Red Road, for example, we're thinking, what possibly can be the connection between those things? I mean, that's something that you do in a, in a, in a lot of the books. Um, and uh, I've, I've never managed to second guess uh, one of them. Now, crime writers famously differ on this. Some people do plot it all out in advance, and they know what's going to happen on page 281. Um, in the third paragraph, and, and others just sort of start with a body and go. So uh, talk us through that. Wh which side of that scale are you on? I very much fall off the cliff face first and just see what happens to you. And actually, I think it takes longer, and I think it's harder, and I think there's always a point two-thirds of the way through the book. I'm sure a lot of the writers who work that way will find this, where you just think, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who did this murder. And, um, uh, and uh, you feel really confused, and you think, I don't know if I can do this one. This is actually, I actually don't know if I can do this one. And, and I usually tell a friend, and they usually say, you say that every time. Um, and, uh, but I think if you get lost, the reader gets lost, you know? Mm. And I, I, so I think that's really important. And I have read books that have been very carefully plotted uh, where you feel that they're slightly shoehorning characters into the plot line, uh, which I like sometimes. And, you know, we're not all reading stuff to feel elevated, and sometimes you're just reading stuff for a romp, and that's fine. It's not that those aren't brilliant books or anything, but... Um, um, I, I usually have no idea, but actually in the Red Road, I just read uh, uh, Brighton Rock, so I had a, so I've, I've stolen a lot of Brighton Rock mm. for that. Um, so there's you know Pinky and Rose. I was going to ask you about that because Pinky Brown, yeah, Pinky so, Brown, yeah. yeah, and uh, um, and Ida Turner as well as the benign neighbour and stuff like that. Um, uh, so I had quite a lot of sort of plot points that I knew I was going to hit. But quite often I don't actually know what's... But the thing about the, the Alex Morrow books is you know who did the killing on the first page, so there has to be some, some narrative draw to you know, make you want to read on and having those disconnected narrative strands and working out what, how on earth are they going to fit together is, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a technical way of creating that, you know, um, uh, pacing and, you know... Um, cause be, because it, it becomes about the faith of the reader in the writer to draw it together rather than the detective to find the murderer, which is, you know, mm -hmm. quite, it's quite intense, actually, um, hopefully. And um, we'll get back to plotting in a moment, but Graham Greene, because I find interviewing lots of writers, um, and it's interesting to be this, I mean, I, um, partly because of being brought up Catholic, um, I mean, Greene has always been a huge writer for me, but when he died, the obituaries were actually quite sniffy, um, a, a lot of them, and yet, now when I interview people in, in America, Australia, it's Graham Greene, and mm. writers of all different um, types. Um, but I think um, it's one of those writers, his reputation actually just gets stronger and stronger. I think when you look at that body of achievement, his books. I mean, he, he was quite sniffy about his entertainments. Mm. 
So he said that the crime fiction books that he wrote were entertainments and they weren't proper books. And the proper books were things like Monsignor Quixote, which is awful. Mm. <laughs> you know, a lot of them are just ponderous rubbish. And um, uh, well, they are, aren't they? <laughs> no, no, I mean, we all true. know that. You know, I mean, you can say that about people. If you really love them, you mm. can say that because there are things there that are just flashes of genius. And uh, his crime fiction, actually, I mean, I, one of the things I love about crime fiction is it's regarded as low art. And I really like low art forms. I like comics. And I, are you just pouring that all over the leather? I am, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because, because readers sort of approach it with a really irreverent yeah. reading style. And if they're not enjoying it, they won't finish it. And, you know, um, people feel very entitled when they read crime fiction. But I think what's one of the things that's so great about Green was he was there at the very beginning of noir. Mm. And if you... Um, uh, if you look at like noirish films that he kind of drew from, because he was a really kind of cinematic writer, um, uh, you know, I mean, it really was like a burgeoning of suddenly, you know, thrillers and sort of low-class thrillers, um, where you, you could suddenly see they could deal with huge themes, ju just the same themes as literary fiction, in a really accessible, exciting way. Although that's the thing that visits the divide that uh, famously or notoriously often comes up at this festival. Graham Greene is unfortunately, uh, I think, largely responsible for that, as you say, in that distinction. He, even on the oh, dust really? jackets, that formal distinction between a novel and an entertainment. Yeah. Uh, which is a pity because he. Is um, it a pity? Because we're in such a special situation, crime writing. I mean, you know, even being at this festival, it's a totally different flavour than most literary festivals. I'm sure most people here feel that. It's a very different flavour, and we're all. You know, there's, there's less obvious hierarchy. I mean, obviously, it's the arts, so everyone's obsessed with hierarchy and who's slightly above somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> like, the worst for that are poets, apparently. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, because we're in, we in the entertainment section, you're not all scrabbling about for, you know, writer-in-residence at Cambridge. Supposing there was such a thing, I don't even know if there yeah. is such a thing. But do you know what I mean? Mm. And, and so, uh, you, you know, there is a sense that what this is about is about narrative. And what this is about is about storytelling. And that's something that we're all engaged in. And I think, you know, readers, you know, people who are becoming writers and writers, that distinction bleeds together in crime writing in a way that it doesn't in literary fiction. I mean, in literary fiction, you're either published um, and you've won a prize or you're not published. You know, I mean, it, so it feels much more like a collective thing mm. that we're doing. And I think, you know, asking to be taken seriously, as asking to be approached in the same way as literary fiction, mm. we lose out a lot. We really do, you know. I mean, I hate the idea of somebody reading your book because they feel they have to. Mm. I would rather people just read something else, you know. And we'll, we'll get off green in a moment, but in politics, which you've written about um, a lot... Um, the Quiet American, I mean, I think one of the greatest political novels there's ever been. Oh, we should do. Sure. It's quite astonishing when you read it and think that he was ahead of the Vietnam See, this is War. why it's not a literary fiction festival, because I can say I haven't read that one. They should go and read it. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get off um, him. But so plotting, have you ever got into a plot, I and mean, you said that you have two-thirds of the way in, you think, have you ever got into one and not been able to write your way out of it? Well, I'm, I'm sort of at that point in the book I'm writing now. Right. So that remains to be seen. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think, there's, I think there's always a resolve. I think there's always a way to resolve it. But whether you do it to your own satisfaction or not is another thing. I mean, I, mean, I think for most writers, you don't really ever finish a book. You just get it taken off you. Or mm. you really, you know, I mean, you, I, you could still be writing your first book. And you do, you could, because it's like doing up a house. 
at the end of doing up a house, you never sit down and think, this is great now. You just think, you know, we went over the skirting board at that bit. And that, <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? It never, nothing ever feels finished. So um, I think I'd like to go back and rewrite all my books and make them much, much better. Mm. But uh, um, so I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think I would ever reach a point where I couldn't find any resolution because sometimes you just need fresh eyes on a book and then you send it to your editor and your editor says, that's tedious they would never do that or do you, you know what I mean because yeah. it I mean I think we always sort of because of literary fiction we tend to think of writing as you know you write something and then you allow other people access to your thoughts but it's interactive reading a book it's much more interactive and you know the reader does so much more of the work than we kind of the way we kind of currently think of it and so you need somebody else to see from from the reader's point of view this is what's going on and stuff like that so you could always send a half-assed draft to you <laughs> get them to come up with the ending <laughs> <laughs> and you, you talk about finding a resolution that's uh, one of the fascinating things about crime fiction i think because there is a pressure that it has to be resolved there actually are crime novels in which um as happens notoriously in real policing a lot they just say well we don't know who did this but it's difficult i think readers find would find that unsatisfying wouldn't they I think I think there are other ways of doing that. I think there are ways of resolving. You can have a sort of, um, uh, you know, the the killer resolution, and you can have minor resolves all the way through, and then you could have a different type of payoff. So, say for example, you had a detective with a personal problem and also a murder. You could have the resolution of the personal problem, but not the resolution of the murder. So, there are lots of ways of giving that kind of satisfying end, and it's lovely to play with that actually, where you think there has been a restoration of order, and then you suddenly realise a page, like on the last page that actually bigger things have been shattered. And I think, you know, crime readers read a lot, so we're very, very used to the form. I mean, there's all sorts of um, um, uh, conventions you just can't use anymore because they get tired really quickly because we read so much, you know? And, um, and I think really neat resolutions don't really do for a lot of readers anymore. If you've read 10 books where there's a really neat resolution and it's a restoration of order, which is what cosy things are, um, or, you know, the perfect resolution in the closed house mystery. You, 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 if you've read 10 of them, you don't really want to read that book again necessarily. And as we know, because if you see the relatives on television at the end of a murder trial, I mean, there is, there can be mm. no resolution for no. the parents or the loved ones of someone who's been murdered. And the, uh, but the criminal justice system because sets up the expectation mm. of, a, of an ending or mm. a satisfying ending. But I think that's so interesting because I think those crime fiction resolutions in, um, influence so much about the way we think about actual crime now, you know, that we assume everything's solvable, that we assume that there will be an end to this. Um, and, uh, you know, that kind of... Uh, there's a really interesting programme on uh, Radio 4, and it was a, a woman who was talking about the way we... We all tell the same story about ourselves over and over again. And, uh, um, and you know, once you've set up this story, there's a sort of narrative inevitability about the way it's going to end. So if you have a murder at the start of a story, narrative inevitability means it has to resolve at the end mm -hmm. of the story. And so when we start thinking about missing girl, sobbing boyfriend at a press conference, that sets up certain mm -hmm. narrative inevitabilities. The story isn't going to be that that um, he's going to he's going to go off and have a successful career as a doctor and marry somebody. That's not. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. it's it has a kind of arc, and um, uh, and and so I think that, that we kind of superimpose the crime fiction arc on actual crime stories. Mm. You know, I was just thinking of that because there there is a case that um, Jill Dando, the broadcaster, her um, boyfriend at that time is now uh, one of the top um, gynaecologists in 
Britain, and yet he's endlessly pressured to give interviews about her. But I mean, his view, I think, quite reasonably is that um, he is at, not that he's forgotten it, but that why should he be cast as that in the public eye always, that that is his storyline, which is an example of that. Exactly, and you get trapped in it. Like the Jamie Bulger, um, Denise Bulger, when I wrote um, a book called Field of Blood, where a small boy is killed, and it was actually based on Mary Bell, it wasn't based on Jamie Bulger, but somebody from the Sunday Times phoned me up and said, "How do you, how, um, you know, what do you think it feels like to Denise Bulger having this brought up again? And I said, uh, I'm not bringing it up again, it's about Mary Bell. And, uh, and then there was a quote from Denise Bulger basically saying, get off the phone and leave me alone. Because <laughs> 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 the journalist had obviously gone off and phoned her, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, so people do get trapped in those stories and it's very, very hard to shed those stories, you know. Um, but yeah. By the way, we're going to talk for a bit and then we've got microphones and we'll take questions from um, the audience. In um, writing a series as you um, are at the moment about um, Alex Morrow, again, that's one of the things that um, many writers sitting on this stage have said, oh, I wish I hadn't done that in the first book and I've, you know, I've locked them in, giving them a French, well, Lee Child said, you know, giving a French mother to, and so on. Um, do you, how much did you know when you started writing about her? And is there anything, did, did you write yourself into any corners with her? I don't think so, because she's not in the books that much. You know, she's kind of an off character, but I, I, I wanted to... Because the books are really like sets of short stories that sort of interweave. So actually, page for page, she's only in the books about a quarter of the time. So she's not, you know, she's not a very heavy presence, I feel. And um, she um, really, at the start, she was just a sulky woman, just a rude woman which I really, I really admire rude women. I've got lots of rude women friends. I was going to say the rudeness, the rudeness is really interesting because um, in, the, in the Red Road, um, at one point there's a little summary of her and she says that she, she always says the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I, mean, I love it. <laughs> especially, especially women because there's such pressure on you to be genial, you know. Mm. And um, I've got a friend who, when people hate her, she says her hand takes over and even if they absolutely hate her and they're staring at her, her hand comes up and does that. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, oh no, the hand. <laughs> uh, but I've got another friend who's almost unemployable. She's so bad tempered. And she's actually in the Garnet Hill books and it's just her. She's Leslie, the really incredibly rude friend. And the first thing she says is, a waiter tries to flirt with her and she says, get us a fucking waitress. <laughs> and she's always giving the book to people and saying, see if you can guess who I am in that. We used to <laughs> and within about three pages, they always say, you're Leslie, aren't you? You're the really, really rude woman. We used to work in a cinema behind the sweetie counter and she would just stand and stare at people like that. What do you want? Raspberry ruffles? What? <laughs> but... Um, uh, but yeah, but so she's she's quite sulky. She's very bad tempered, and um, but she's got a happy home life, and that was mm. something that I really wanted to sort of explore. It's not something you see a lot in crime fiction, mm. and you know, um, uh, I, you know, it's something I really wanted to represent with somebody who was in a lot of conflict but had peace at home, because you know, for some reason, those narratives. It's not just in crime fiction, but you know, um, I was reading a book about adversity. Not that I'm having adversity, but um, I was reading a book about adversity. It was a sort of philosophical book. And it said, you know, why do we think about conflict all the time and why do we ponder the conflicts in our own life and why are these the things that hold our attention? And, uh, and he was saying that, um, that conflict is puzzling in a way that contentment and happiness aren't. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you know, come out of a happy family and then spend the next 30 years in therapy going, what is that about, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it's not, so, you know, it's not compelling in the way that, that conflict is. 
but actually it's something that you just don't see represented, you know. Um, so that was something that I really wanted to represent was somebody who was with someone nice and like their children, just for to be very outre. Well, there's that. Um, it's, I think it's Tolstoy, isn't it? Somebody will shout out if it isn't that um, all happy families are alike, but all unhappy families are, um, are unhappy in different ways. Well, you see, from a writer's point of view, well, I say from a writer's point of view, I think happy families are all happy in their own way, but you just don't see representations of that. So unhappy families are unhappy in their own way, but because you've seen so many explorations of mm. that theme, but you just don't see. Um, representations of, you know, contentment and um, uh, and peace because they're not bland and beige and you know they, they require tremendous um, compromises and tenderness is something you don't see represented very much. You know, just the tenderness people have for each other and uh, you know, McIlvaney actually William McIlvaney says you know if literature is about representing the human experience, 80% of the witnesses have never been called. And I think 80% of the experiences mm. have never actually been represented. You don't see people, but one of the things, you know, one of the, the narrative strands I would really like to see challenged, and I'm not in a position to do it, would be someone who was nursing someone with Alzheimer's and it wasn't a nightmare. Do you know mm. what I mean? You never see that, ever. The tenderness between a carer and someone who's mm. a bit confused. You never see, um, you know, the kindness of people looking after each other. You just don't see those things. There is a play on in London, which is, is um, about uh, that Perseverance Road at the Bush Theatre. Oh right. In London, the, the final act is um, uh, is about a son caring for his um, a dying father who um, he's he's fallen out with in the past, but they they reconcile through that. Oh, I'd love to see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see that because it's you know these yeah. it's nice for people. You know it's. It's really important, I think, to see our experiences re reflected in mm. stories, and uh, um, and you know, just you just sometimes if you write a lot and you read a lot, you do feel that you're reading the same things over and over again. Mm. You know. Although um, one of the things that uh, I really like about your books is that um, you talk about her being rude and um, quite <coughs> unpleasant a lot of the time. Alex, at the start of the Red Road, although. Um, happily married, the uh, mother of one-year-old twins, um, I was shouting out, don't do it, Alex, she, she's flirting with um, another man. With a barrister? Mm. Well, she just did. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, go on, do. Say something bad. No, no, uh, but you see, that's what I... I think what you're exploring there is that um, Zelda Westmead, the... Um, uh, the advice columnist for the Mail on yeah. Sunday, when people write to her and say, I'm happy and yet I fancy this other person, she says, look, it happens. That's how people are wired. And I huh. thought that's what you were getting at there. Actually, I think it's about being a bit older. When I was very young, I was very clear about my boundaries and I wouldn't flirt with people. And if people flirted with me, I'd take them aside and have a word with them. Because, uh, seriously, <laughs> I, yeah, I was really, oh, God, it's heavy going. Um, and uh, a friend of mine was had the same position, you know, and uh, once this man leaned forward to kiss her and she put her hand up and she said, you know, I find that impersonal and you're in my personal space. And he said, I was just going to tell you your fly's undone, hun. <laughs> <laughs> but then you get older and you realise this is a really... This is a very kind way to interact with other people. And it is a kind way, you know, and you don't feel threatened in the same way. It's lovely being an older woman. I think being a young woman is quite frightening, actually. 
And particularly in the 80s, it was quite a frightening time. And, you know, I mean, all this historic abuse stuff coming out and rape cases actually being prosecuted and that sort of thing. But if you were active in the feminist movement then, we all knew about all that stuff. Mm. And we told people about all that stuff and nothing happened. So, I mean, it was a really sinister time, mm. you know. Everyone knew about it. People say now, oh, people knew about Jimmy Savile. They did know. Everybody mm. knew about it and nothing happened. Even if you went through the correct channels, you would always reach a certain point where nothing would happen. And, um, you know, I think that was a lot of people's experience and it was very sinister and you felt very unsafe a lot of the time, you know? There was also um, an amazing... I mean, obviously, lots of people have been thinking about this a lot recently. Amazing public um, tolerance or indifference. Um, I was watching for research purposes the other day. There's a, um, an It's a Knockout... Um, and while introducing the programme, Stuart Hall has got his um, hands on the um, breasts of two young women, and that was regarded as quite normal, apparently, at the time. I mean, they, it was certainly never discussed. It was never discussed. But the 70s were a very, very strange time. Yeah. I mean, I think coming from the really oppressive... I mean, I think you always have to assume the best of people, and I don't think it was that there was a massive sinister plot. I think it was very largely now, people do not know what to do about that sort of thing. They don't know what to do, so they just sort of blanket and they think, oh, and people with normal, I mean, juries will not convict for rape. One of the reasons they won't convict for rape is because people with normal sexual behaviour can't imagine, they think it must be a mistake as to consent. They don't imagine someone hitting someone in the face with a brick. They just think, there must have been a mix-up here because it's so out with most people's experience, that sort of predatory sexuality, you know, um, uh, there was a, a, a case at the Edinburgh High Court recently and it was this man who was happily married, had had a lot previous, 20, 20 years before, and he'd been out in a works night out and this Polish woman um, who'd had a violent fight with her boyfriend in a bar, he was walking her home and she said that he'd raped her. And he said, I didn't, I, you know, I've got a daughter, I'm, I would never do anything like that. And the, um, eventually they found a bit of CCTV of him dragging her up an alley by the hair you know, raped her and thing, then pretending to be on the phone to the police, threatening her, and, uh, um, and and she was really, really drunk. So, I mean, every reason on earth to discount it. But I think people discount those sorts of allegations for very good, benign reasons. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think people are having their eyes opened by all this historic abuse coming out. Uh, but, I mean, I remember the, the satanic abuse inquiry which found that there was no such thing as satanic child abuse, but there was abuse which was satanic in flavour. That was the finding of that <laughs> inquiry. And that is, that is nice people trying to make sense mm. of something that is totally out with their experience. And, as, you know, sexuality was totally unspoken before mm. the 70s. So, you know, you did have things like the paedophile information network working with the gay rights movement because people didn't know that you know, that because you could have been arrested um, three years before for being gay and they could inject you with hormones for being gay or put you in psychiatric hospital. It was only 73 that the American Psychiatric Association mm -hmm. said that being gay wasn't a mental illness. So, I mean, it's a huge turnaround and I think this is the fallout from it is that people are starting to, um, you know, think about harm and, uh, you know, causing harm and and, and the normal parameters of sexuality. But the 70s were kind of anything goes because it was a huge backlash. You know, it's a bit heavy for nine in the morning. Well, no, 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 but it's... Uh, <laughs> no, these are very current subjects. We'll, we'll get back to the books in a minute. And a lot of this does come into the books. But the last thing I'll have is I've been thinking about what it would be like to be a juror in one of these recent cases. And certainly the pattern so far, and I, I think you can understand why, is that in the trial so far, if there's any element of paedophilia, the jury find against the person. Yeah. 
but if it's um, over the age of consent, uh, but then there's another issue. It's a real problem, isn't it? How do you establish what happened in a bedroom or an office 40, 50 years ago? I mean, that's, it seems to me an incredibly hard thing to ask of jurors or indeed of the legal system there. And, you know, it is beyond a reasonable doubt. So mm. if you're, and, and, but, and, and another thing is, you know, the tragedy of the past being judged by the present is you're not there. You know, somebody said the tragedy of the Holocaust is people nowadays are judging it from their own perspective of, well, I just wouldn't take that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You, you've no idea what it was like when you were there, you know, and... Um, and uh, in the 70s, you know, there was a hyper-sexualised atmosphere and it was regarded as, you know, liberal and modern to, you know, touch up 14-year-olds on top of the pops. I mean, it was, you mm. know, kind of regarded as a positive social value. And <laughs> it was. Mm. And um, uh, Because it was seen as liberation. Exactly. Yeah. You know, exactly. And, uh, um, you know, attaching a sort of positive value to those kinds of behaviours. There was a positive value attached to those kinds of behaviours, which made... You know, workplaces very unsafe and, and frankly, creepy. I mean, those of us who grew up in the 70s, you know, is a relief because you do think I wasn't just going through puberty. It was a really creepy time. You, do, you know, like most people are quite freaked out during puberty, but it was a really, really creepy time and there was a kind of rapey atmosphere in the 70s. There just was. And the, I mean, there are all sorts of things, but the back massage, those men who would walk around massaging the shoulders of women in offices. I mean, that was the beginning of it, saying you look very tense. But all that stuff just went on quite easily. Didn't it? That sounds like a really shabby 70s porn <laughs> movie. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen any. Have you? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the subject we discussed last night on stage, and um, I may know she's talking about it again, because it, it fascinates me, which is um, Scotland at the um, moment. Um, I think I'm not comparing the situations, but Nadine Gordimer died this week. And there is this thing, I think, in writers' lives that um, there's a difference between um, bad luck as a citizen and good luck as a writer, that if you look at those South African writers, they clearly had terrible bad luck as a citizen because they were living through that um, disastrous uh, racist situation. And yet, as a writer, it gave mm -hmm. them their subject, and many of them struggled afterwards to find another one. Same in Eastern... I mean, Vaslev Havel said one of the reasons he went into politics was that there was nothing to write about anymore because they'd lost their subject. Um, it's not comparable, but it is... Um, it's a lucky... In that sense, whatever you think about the referendum, it's a lucky time for Scottish writers, isn't it? It's a very lucky time. It's a very meaty time, mm. you know, and... Uh, um, it's like being in the middle of a very, very big argument and, uh, and you have to think clearly. I think it's making people think very clearly, um, think, you know, what is my place in this? I mean, whenever I get... Because the yes and no people always want to sort of get you to speak and I can always... I can actually feel my ego coming to a boil, you know? And uh, uh, I, there was one week, it was the year before the referendum and I was asked on about six different major news programmes all at the same, at the same week. And, uh, and I could actually feel my... I felt as if the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. And, and it was like my ego was trilling in a high sea, you know. And I, and I thought, yeah, it really was. And it was like, oh, my God. And, um, you know, I said to my partner, maybe I should do all this and I could actually set the agenda, you know. And he's quite a sensible person. And, uh, he, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, said, uh, he said, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe you should just go to Syria and sort that out. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, so I think I should stay away from that. But that was fascinating because if, as a writer, you think, oh, my God, this is what politicians feel when they get near raw power. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what they feel. They actually feel. But they don't have the sarcastic partner and they don't have the, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, all those other, you know, the sort of introspection. But if that happened to you when you were younger and you got near raw power, mm. that would feel like normal life to you. That would feel like something appropriate that, you know, someone who's 50 should think the world would be better if they were just in charge. Who would think that? You know, <laughs> you know um, and uh, so that, I mean, that stuff is absolutely fascinating. Being in the middle of a big debate is fascinating. Um, even things like, you know, Twitter, because I had, a, I had an article in the um, uh, New York Times, I had an op-ed about the, um, how binary it is. Right, right from the off, it was yes or no, and it was all being represented as yes or no. Do you want to be on a yes or no camp? Uh, camp? Do you want to speak as a yes or speak as the no? And there was, you know, there was no kind of like, you know, we should talk about this or we should unpack it or isn't this interesting or whatever. Immediately it was to um, that debating binary. It was a very reductive argument. Right but that's how Cameron set it up though, isn't it? I mean, they just wanted... It's the, more complicated than uh, that. It's more complicated than that. It's, it's the way the media set it up because that's good programming. I mean, there's no mm. point in having someone come on and say, wouldn't it be nice if we could all be friends? Who was going to watch that programme? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it doesn't end. So you don't reach the point where you say, well, yes, citizenship is an, is an interesting issue. And now the weather. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's because and Twitter also has really added to the way the discourse has unfolded because, um, you know, shouting abuse at each other is what you can do on Twitter in, in po political terms. Um, or you can be oblique, but then people just don't, they're not interested in what you're saying, you know. So um, uh, things like, you know, so I had this article about how, you know, it shouldn't be argumentative and we should facilitate one another arriving at whatever conclusion one another arrived at. And, consensual and all sorts of buzzwords anyway and uh, and people wrote to me on twitter and said you know how dare you you're obviously a yes or you're obviously <laughs> a no i was kind of halfway between the two and you know i kept saying is irony dead have you not read the fucking and somebody actually <laughs> said i said you know it's too argumentative and somebody actually tweeted me shite they said <laughs> <laughs> you know and uh, uh yeah but it's just it's, it is it's really fascinating but i think you know, as if you work in the arts, we should be doing something more in depth than telling people where to put their cross in a box. Mm -hmm. And I think the arts, what the arts do is not answer questions, but raise more questions. That's really what we do is we're supposed to be opening things up and, you know, getting people to think about things in different ways, not telling people what to do. I mean, if, you know, if you write about, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of writing about politics and politics is really what I'm interested in. Politics was the small c and the way we interact with one another and the way we sort of or organize ourselves. And, um, uh, you know, if when I started writing Garnet Hill, I thought really, you know, if you're interested in politics, why are you writing novels? Why are you not just printing T-shirts? Mm. And that is something you do mm. have to ask yourself. If you really care about politics, why use narrative? You know, how can you justify using narrative to do something quite? And it actually, it is that that you know you're not just telling people, and you're wrong because you're trying to, you know, um, engage in a conversation with people in a way that's uh, because a lot of the people in the arts in Scotland are very involved in trying to get other people to vote the way they want. Mm them to vote and I think that's a mistake I think that's you know what, what we're looking for is not a right or wrong answer we're looking for a consensus you know and well, uh, yeah. yeah but you've probably seen in um, newspapers as we build up to the referendum um, they they divide the page and at the top they have yes and no and they put up photographs of um, uh, writers and public oh, really? figures yeah. uh, and others. But you're right, the binary thing is set up by broadcasting because um, they, I was told there was a discussion at the BBC about whether 
for balance, they needed to have an undecided person in each discussion <laughs> as well. And I think they ended up undecided about whether they needed to have yeah. a, uh, an undecided person. Because it's difficult that. Do you, do you have to have three people in every discussion? Is that what balance is? Because technically well, I was an undecided for a long time, and, uh, but I actually wasn't really undecided. But, so then you have the moral obligation of going on and you just feel like you're not going to come out and say which way you're voting because you don't want to be trying to influence other people. So then you're going on programmes as an undecided, actually being decided, this is a very common conundrum, um, <laughs> and feeling like, well, you have to then be responsible and represent the undecided view, but you're not undecided. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's a tricky it's a tricky kind of thing. Anyway, best just staying away from the whole thing. But, um, uh, I, mean, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it, good programming isn't the abstract truth, and my mm -hmm. worry is it will become a, a, a sort of you know, Britain's Got Political Campaigns type mm. deal where people vote on who did the best campaign and they've both been pretty shabby. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, we'll see anyway. But uh, I had to come out, actually. I had to out myself um, because uh, um, s s people kept retweeting me as oh. if I was part of their organisation. Right. And, and I didn't particularly want to come out, but, you know, but I think if you're not campaigning, that's all right. Do you want to come out again for people? Position clear. Well, I said, small point of order, I'm being retweeted by pro-indie supporters as if I'm pro-indie and I'm not. Mm. Kindly fuck off. <laughs> and, uh, and to their credit, they, they did exactly that. They kindly fucked off. And there was no <laughs> abuse about it. And it, it was very nicely done. And, uh, you know, a couple of people emailed me and said, you know, I'm sorry if that was inappropriate. I misunderstood. And I thought that was very gracious and very nicely done, actually. But, I, I mean, I don't particularly mm. want to propose a position because I've been wrong about things before. This is pundit death. I've been wrong about things before and I don't really know what everybody should do. So I don't want to, you know, get involved in the campaign. And the thing is, I worked for an MEP when I first left uni. I was a, a law student and I thought I was going to go into politics. And after working with um, a politician in politics for, you know, a good few months, I suddenly realised these people are not like us. They are, <laughs> <laughs> they are not arts people at all, and they will eat you. And you know there will be casualties in the arts from this because there are really lovely people involved in this who have no idea who they're in bed with, and you know you can't control what happens afterwards. So, say for example, I mean, you th think about people like, um, you know. Um, Bernard Shaw, uh, you know, uh, proposing eugenics. I mean, you don't know mm. what's going to happen with those, you know, mm. you don't know where, where that, that narrative is going to end or what you're going to be implicated in. And, uh, yeah, you, know, you have to be very careful, you know. And I, I think in the arts, people are very, very, especially when you reach a certain level, everyone wants to co-opt your work, mm. you know, everyone. So they're not really interested in poems about, you know, the seashore, really what they want is you, your big face on a poster. They're not in the least bit interested in actual arts, you know? And uh, you have to be very careful with that. Well, there's that Seamus Heaney poem where terrorists actually say to him, when are you going to write a poem for us? I mean, that's about that. Exactly. Uh, being forced to be on one side yeah. or, or, or the other. Um, you, you, asked, you asked yourself the question, though, why, why are you writing books about politics instead of uh, printing T-shirts? But one very good answer to that is Gods and Beasts, I think, um, in the uh, Alex Morrow series. Um, and we're going to have one of our conversations where we can't, <laughs> we're not allowed to say who it's based on. But um, you were able to do something. You were able to write about um, an aspect of Scottish politics uh, which has been impossible for journalism and um, broadcasting to actually deal with. And that is one of the things that fiction can do. You were able to fictionalise 
a certain um, sizable Scottish figure? Tommy Sheridan. <laughs> <laughs> he's not sued me, so I'm just assuming he's not going to sue me. And, uh, uh, yeah, and the, uh, as soon as the Tommy Sheridan case finished, there was no mention of it in the media. They're not allowed... You, you can't mention it in newspapers in case he sues you. Mm. And uh, he probably won't, but you can't. And... Um, uh, there's also been a play Although Andy Coulson is going to go on... Um, I think that's going to happen, isn't it? He, he, I think he is going to be uh, tried for perjury, isn't he, in that case? I think. Is he? I think so. Yeah, oh, I read that the other day. I, 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 I think so. Well, yeah. the party goes on. Mm. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, that was such a fundamental thing. But you were going to say there was a play, wasn't there? By, there was um, a play by Ian Patterson, Patterson yeah. who wrote Rab C. Nesbitt, mm. and it was called I, Tommy. Mm. So he, was, he actually said the name, yeah. so he's in more trouble than I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, uh, but I th you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think he's gonna. I don't think he would um, sue anybody but Rupert Murdoch because I think he's very aware of how he comes over. Um, and but I think it's important that it is discussed, is that this was going on, and that that um, you know that our, our politicians were fatally compromised. And that was a Savile thing as well because mm. I remember people telling me things about him and thinking that just sounds like right wing propaganda. And uh, do you know what I mean? Mm. It, it does. It sounds like right-wing propaganda, and then it turned out it was all true. And um, uh, so people knew about it, and there were always rumours about it. But you just think how vulnerable that makes a politician, and how you know uh, how there can actually be conspiracies of silence. You just don't think there would be conspiracies of silence anymore. And um, and there are. And somebody was saying one of the big things that people talk about a lot in the referendum is the Westminster bubble. You know, as if Westminster is the only place bubbles happen, <laughs> you know, and uh, and there are lots and lots of bubbles in Scotland. But, you know, because we're like um, the the um, the youngest child or whatever, you know, like the smallest partner, um, it's easy to believe that there aren't bubbles. But there are lots and lots of bubbles. And that was a massive bubble. Everybody in that party knew what was going on. Um, and nobody said anything. And not that it's wrong, but it just makes you so vulnerable. And it's, you know, it makes your public persona a lie. And, um, and you know, even if you're not vulnerable to blackmail or persuasion, it, 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 it just, I mean, you wouldn't think that could possibly happen in, in somewhere as small as Glasgow, you know, um, and yet it did. Yeah. But so there's been no discussion about it mm. since, none mm. at all. And just a total media blackout. And his wife now has a column in the Sunday Mail and talks about their family life all the time. And she hasn't reviewed your book in that column. So, um, <laughs> I, should, I should admit, Carolyn Lecky, who was one of the people who was represented in the book, and, um, uh, and you know, she said that uh, that was basically the, the meeting in, in Gods and Beasts was the meeting, because um, you couldn't get the minutes for it, and, uh, and she said, you know, uh, um, you know, it's great to see it represented. You could see her kind of hoping she wasn't a bad character, and I said, you're not a bad character, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so people are rewriting history and, and mm. you know, laying out their, their um, flags and stuff like that now. Two more quick questions before we open it up to the... Um, Audience, on the um, this is general on the referendum, but I think the question that historians and biographers of David Cameron are going to ask um, will be: Did he have to have this um, referendum? Could he not have had it? Could he have got away with not having one? I don't think so. Mm. Not with the, not when mm. the SNP got in. Yeah. I don't think so. And and I think it all. I think a lot of it goes back to the Iraq War. Mm. I think a lot of it goes back to Scottish Labour voters thinking, "I'm not voting for you anymore because of what you did." And by default, the SNP getting in, and then people seeing that they were quite competent. And uh, I mean, I don't think he could. I think um, had he wanted to stymie it, um, he could have kept more control over the timing, 
or the the um, age limit on the vote or stuff like that. But to be honest with you, I don't, you know, I mean, there's no way they could have not had it because people people do need to have it. But, you know, a, a lot of people in Quebec are involved in like Facebook mm. discussions about it and, the, and they call it a never end them because it just <laughs> comes up again and again yeah. and again and again. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, uh, and the, the statistics don't really change in Quebec. It's always mm. the same proportion of people who really want independence. Um, but I think it's good, and I think there's been a real kind of civic revolution in Scotland where people are actually talking about quite fundamental politics. I mean, I think almost everybody feels disillusioned with contemporary politics, and we do all feel a bit trapped by it, and we don't necessarily feel represented by it. And, you know, most people are, are too busy to get involved in full-time politics. They're too busy. They're, they're bringing up children. They're looking after older people in their family. They've got jobs. Um, you know, whatever, and they really want somebody to take care of all that stuff. But just to, you, philosophically, it feels like a new enlightenment, actually, you know, and uh, um, people are thinking about what is the purpose of government? I mean, do we expect to be represented by these people? Professional politicians don't represent me. Would I then stand for politics? Would I stand for a parliament? Would I? Should I? Uh, you know, if, I mean, for example, if you, um, if you can never have taken drugs and stand for election, Who's going to stand for election? Well, it's going to be these people that don't represent any of us. Not that I've taken lots of drugs or anything. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if you can never have had a misadventure or a bankrupt company and stand, you know, who are we going to get? Well, we're going to get these people who were in political organisations when they were 16, giving talks at party conferences mm. when they were 15. And who we don't have, you know, we don't have, said, what are you? I don't know what you are. You know, you should be out smashing phone boxes at your age. You know, if you can find a phone box now. Yes, but, um, you know, uh, uh, but you, people don't feel represented. You don't see a lot of carers there. You don't see a lot of, you know, you don't see mums. You can't do that job if you've got kids. It's, you know, it, the, the whole thing is organised around you know, um, odd men and, frankly, suits that are too expensive for their faces, answering questions, <laughs> you know, answering questions. I know someone who would look nice in that suit and you're not that guy. <laughs> um, bearing in mind that your publisher isn't in the room, we know that. So um, just tell us before we open it up, um, so the how close are we to the next um, Alex Morris? About a month away. About a month away. Not publication, completion. Oh, no, no, oh, right. April? Yeah. Yeah. I think April, next April. Oh, yeah, so I've got a year off, so I won't be up for the feast this next year. You can all breathe this, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so uh, that's, you know, but I mean, because, I mean, it is kind of about, you know, it is about community, but not about you should vote this way or you should vote that way, because there are such big issues coming out of it, you know, mm. philosophically. And um, uh, it's, provisionally, it's called Blood, Salt, Water. And uh, uh, it's based in a town called Helmsborough, mm. which is a very beautiful, mm. you know, to Helmsborough, really mm. beautiful um, mm. sort of Victoria Spa town, which it was, it was the Hamptons of uh, Britain. And uh, one time all, a quarter of all the millionaires in Britain lived there. So the absolutely beautiful houses and, um, uh, you know, slightly forgotten kind of, and, and lots of train lines going into it because it had great commuter yeah. kind of things, you know. And is it set in the past? No, it's no. set. Contemporaneously. So will you um, take in the result of the referendum? No, no. I'm not going to mention that. I mean, everybody keeps putting on telly and finding referendum debates and putting the telly off. Mm. So that... It features in that way, which is a big feature of Scottish public life at the moment. It's like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, if we could bring the lights up and then we've got roving microphones and then we'll do as many as we can. Um, who would... 
Denise's eyes may be better than mine are, but because um, I'm looking into the spotlights. But who would like to start us off? Don't be shy. Um, go on. Anyone like to have a go? It's a big room, though. Um, ooh, that's There's somebody right yes, at the very back. There's, we can see a hand at the back. Could you turn it? Yes, get the microphone there. Thank you. Brave. Um, <clears throat> have you ever considered writing books set outside of Scotland and outside of that area? I, I am as an English person living in Scotland, so I enjoy them. But I just wonder if you feel you can't go beyond Scotland or you wouldn't want to go beyond Scotland. That's a really interesting question because I don't, I grew up in London. I don't really think of my books as magnificently Scottish, actually, you know. And when I moved to Glasgow, I found London quite overwhelming, actually, to live in as a teenager. And when I moved to Glasgow, I thought, this is the perfect every city, which is, I mean, it is very strong cheese, Glasgow. It's a very particular place, but it's the perfect size to be a universal city. And, um, uh, so when, I, when I'm writing about Glasgow, I always think I'm writing about every city, really, although people talk more, obviously. Um, and uh, so it's sort of like the perfect, the perfect um, city for chatty people. But, um, uh, but quite often people go, I mean, one of the things about the moral books is it is about international um, crime. I mean, international crime accounts for something like 20% of GDP and uh, uh, worldwide. I mean, the black market is, you know, a huge part of the global economy. Um, so in the Red Road, it's about money laundering to Pakistan. So, uh, you know, I feel like it is, they are kind of international books set in a small area. Um, I think if I, if I was writing about somewhere, I would need to live there um, to really get the flavour of it. And, um, uh, you know, there's something quite undiscovered about Glasgow. I feel like lots of people don't, you know, even people that live there, because people tend to live, like, you know, in Bears Den or you know, quite small areas. And uh, one of the things about Glasgow is you're always very close to, unless you live in Bears Den, you're always very close to poor areas, you know. And um, uh, so there is that something unique about crime fiction um, that, that, that suits Glasgow. But I've written a lot of short stories and comics that are set in other places. Um, I've been writing The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as a series of graphic novels, and they're all set in Stockholm, which I have a very kind of um, brisk no knowledge of. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but that, that story was already set out. So, you know, like one of the big things I think a lot of people find about writing is the distances between places and the actual geography of a small physical area, like how close the shop is and is there a garage that you could get milk at and, you know, things like that. You know, uh, are there bars nearby? Those kinds of things. So I think you really need to live somewhere to set a book there. Otherwise, people write complaining letters and say... You know, you could mm. never buy flowers at three o'clock on a Sunday here. And, uh, and, and, <laughs> and, and if that's wrong, it's just the whole thing's really wrong. So I think you really have to write about somewhere that you know. So if I, um, if I was going to write about someplace else, I would feel that I, I needed to move there. Unless it's a short story, in which case the geography of the place isn't that important, you know. But um, uh, when I moved there in 86, nobody lived there. I mean, everybody with talent left. The, you know, really, everybody went to London, if you, you know, uh, so, I mean, it was like West Berlin, it was a very particular place to choose to live, and uh, and I just sort of fell in love with it, it was a really melancholic place, now it's a, a burgeoning um, metropolis, and uh, it's a very go-ahead city, but it really wasn't like that at the time, and I just kind of fell in love with it, and uh, it still feels very unseen, actually, There's a, in Glasgow, a lot of the buildings are 
red sandstone. I'm saying this, and in a fortnight, you'll all be sick to death of Glasgow. You'll all know it backwards um, <laughs> with the Commonwealth Games kickoff. But they build a lot of buildings out of red sandstone that are glittery in the sun. And when the sky is blue behind it, it's just shattering. It's like deep red, glittery buildings with blue sky behind it. And in the 80s, they always had big bushes growing out of them because so many buildings were derelict. And it's like images like that of Glasgow that you never, ever see, and they're mesmerising, you know. And so, you know, but London, I don't feel London is a scene city. I mean, lots of things are set in London, but you very rarely get the flavour of London. I, I, you know, Danger Mouse is probably the closest thing I can think of <laughs> visually to actually what London feels like. It feels kind of papery, mm. a lot of London, you know, and... Um, uh, so it still feels that, that there's a lot to write about there, you know. But I would consider it if you would like to put me up in a luxury house. You <laughs> <laughs> might, might soon be writing novels set outside the United Kingdom if um, might be. Alex Salmond has his way. Might and be. that would be interesting for a writer. It'd be fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm so torn because, um, uh, you know, if it did happen, chaos. I mean, it would be fascinating. It would be mesmerising to mm. see what happens, you know. And as a friend of mine said, I, I'm voting yes because I, I quite like you know, change, and I thought, yeah, change, yeah, you know, uh, no, I bet, you know, I mean, it's interesting times, it's yeah. great times to be a writer. Mm. Um, yes, uh, who would like, go on, yes, a hand um, in the back corner there, we're just getting the microphone around. Have you ever been put off telling a story because the amount of technical research you would have needed to do, or do you relish doing that kind of work? I do very little research. Um, I actually, um, the way I do research is I find out what the questions are. I think you can get really lost in doing research and anyone who has ever sat down to write anything knows procrastination is your enemy. <laughs> You've done lots of research on something, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you can spend your whole life doing research and thinking I'll start writing in a minute. That's wrong. Write it, find out what you don't know, narrow the question right down and go and ask someone the answer. That's the way to do it. You'll save yourself months and months and months and months of work. And sometimes you don't know that you don't know, um, and in which case you get it wrong, actually. But actually, what you really, I find that you really need to do very little research. There are things like, you know, uh, um, I mean, particularly now, police officers approach me and say, I'll tell you all about the arms we are all carrying. Apparently, police are all carrying arms and nobody knows about it. And, but people will tell you stuff, you know. They used to have a media department in the Scottish Police, Strathclyde Police, and they, they did away with that. And what they do now is they leave you sitting in reception waiting for somebody for two and a half hours until you get fed up and have to go and pick your kids up. <laughs> it's very, very effective. And... Um, <laughs> Because the, the waiting room is full of writers all sitting about looking at each other like that. And, uh, 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 but, you know, people always say, well, you know, uh, I'll tell you what it's really like or what the geography of this office is like or what the locker rooms are like or what we call where we arrest people. But you can't get put me in the acknowledgements because the chief inspector doesn't want anyone talking to writers or journalists or anything like that. So for police procedurals, that's very particular. Um, but, you know... I mean, the internet is amazing, but, but you have to know what your question is because I'm sure we've all typed things in that were a bit too vague and spent three hours reading irrelevant stuff and then thought, that was great, and then realised I, I didn't get any answers from that, you know? So if you want to be time efficient, work out what your question is, make it very specific, and then start writing, and then, you know, um, go and find the answer rather than spend four weeks in a mortuary because, really, you know, a, a friend of mine was writing a screenplay 
and uh, wanted to do research with me and we spent two days driving around looking at different locations and then I, at the end of it I realised you're procrastinating, you're not doing research, you're procrastinating and uh, um, mostly we've all read books where someone's done lots of research and they are, by God, they are going to get that into that book. <laughs> Whether you are interested or not, they are going to get it in because it took them four days to find out what that was called and you are going to hear about it, you know, and... Um, uh, and as a reader, you're not generally that interested in, you know, what kind of house it was or when it was built or, you know, what sort of mortar they used between the bricks. So, uh, you know, um, I, I think you always have to remember that, particularly in crime fiction, you know, the reader wants, to, wants something to happen and they want an answer to a question that you've already raised. They're not really interested in where they got their shoes and that kind of thing. And this stuff is not hard to find. And if you tell a good story badly researched you will do better than if you tell a well-researched story badly told. That's the, the important thing to remember. You know? That's all we really care about, isn't it? Because we're just really there for the story. <laughs> um, last question. Anybody like to get in the last question before? There's a hand yes, there. there's, um, in, in the uh, back room, there's a hand waving. Two hands waving now. So we get oh, the... It's um, the same person. <laughs> <laughs> and there'll be a fight because they're next to each other. Hi, Denise. Uh, how do you feel about your TV adaptations? Because um, Field of Blood was on BBC, Field of Blood and The Dead Hour, I thought they were absolutely brilliant. I think that was really, really rare for people to really love um, the TV adaptations. The actress who played Paddy Meehan is the double of me at that age. It's really creepy. I, I feel like the, the casting director must have been following me about. They might actually have drunk in the bar that I used to work in. But she is the absolute double of me at that age. And... Um, and it turns out she comes from around the corner from where my family are, which is kind of a oh, bit of a milkman kind of story there. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, uh, but uh, I thought they were absolutely brilliant. And I thought, you know, they, they did it on absolutely no budget. It was some sort of budget argument between um, national BBC and regional BBC. And uh, so they did it on nothing. And, and I, I knew it was being made. Um, and every so often in the street, somebody would come up to me and say, I'm the sub-editor on Field of Blood. But they seemed really, really proud. And, um, and I know that everybody was working for very little money. And uh, so I think they had a real sense of ownership over it. And that's why it's such a lovely thing. And, you know, the, the, because they didn't have very much money, almost in its historical, everything's shot indoors. So, um, uh, you know, you say to people, you know, they had absolutely no money for that set. And, People say, you know, it looked a bit crap, you know, and they say, but the 80s was a bit crap, and the 80s was a bit crap, <laughs> everything was a bit crap. Um, so, I, I mean, I was really delighted with it, and I think they're going to make a third one. And, uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't expect that to, to be the case with everything that ever gets made. You know, I was sitting next to Peter Capaldi at the BAFTAs, and... and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that story doesn't really go anywhere, I'm just leaving <laughs> But he was talking about, how he made a film... Um, called Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life, which mm. won an Oscar. It was a brilliant, brilliant short film. And then he made another film, and I was saying to him, you know what, I just don't think that'll ever happen again. He said, yeah, you know, just the, the, when he made that film, it was his first film, and it was perfect, and it was exactly what he meant, and he was so proud of it, and, um, uh, and he said, that'll never happen again. You know, it's a really sort of magical time. Is someone being murdered? Some, yeah, I think it's, um, yeah. I think it's a thematic offstage um, event. Is it? Someone is, is being it? murdered. Yeah, I think it's, they lay stuff on it this festival. Does that, does that mean five minutes? Yeah. Um, well, no, no, that means now. That means now. When the murder actually happens, it means you have to stop the session. Ooh. So um, <laughs> we, um, 
We have, um, so this was special guest, Denise Miner, uh, sponsored by Orion Publishing Group. Uh, so thank you to them, thank you to all of you, and Denise will be signing books. No. Are you? Now, yeah. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.